chapter 19 this evening. And if you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles. Just wave at them, get their attention, and they'll get one into your hands. And uh, makes it so much nicer in the evening. We cover a little more territory than the morning service and to be able to follow along reading. Very helpful. We kind of got stopped, uh, and well, we stopped ourselves, actually. I can't really blame anybody else, can I? It's like it was just an innocent victim of some kind of an event. But we stopped at the end of chapter 18, which was uh, dealing with the reign of one of the very, very good kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, a man by the name of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat did have a weakness in that he found it difficult to say no to people. And uh, sometimes he had a difficulty saying no to evil people, wicked people, that he should have just slammed the door on the conversation, said, no, I'm not going to have anything to do with your plans. You see God's favor upon my life. You want a part of that favor without being godly yourself. I'm not going to have you draw me in to your wicked plans. But he didn't do that. And so he entered into a battle, uh, aligned himself with Ahab, the worst king of the northern kingdom of Israel that Israel ever had. Just a wicked, wicked man with his wife Jezebel. And he agreed to go into battle to fight against the uh, Syrians in order to regain a city called Ramoth Gilead. And as they went into battle, uh, God was, uh, had warned uh, Jehoshaphat through one of his prophets not to enter into that battle. He did it anyway. Never good to go against God's word or against his warnings. And so he headed into the battle anyway, maybe trying to save face. He had given his word and he should have backed out and then pointed everyone to God and said, God won't let me go. And if you have a problem with that, don't take it up with me. Take it up with God. And that's a good thing to do. You know, it's one of the places that uh, wives have in the authority structure of the home. You have in terms of authority, not in terms of value or in terms of even certainly not in terms of smartness. But you have an authority structure. You have God, number one. And then you have the husband and then you have the wife. And, and she has a wonderful place in that authority structure is if somebody's trying to manipulate her or somebody's trying to get her to do something that she doesn't want to do. She has the great privilege of being able to say, listen, um, I can't do that without the approval of my husband and he won't give me his approval on that. And, and so if you have a problem with that decision, you'll have to take it up with him and stop harassing me. Well, I can't tell you how wonderful that would be when sometimes women say, well, that's just such a terrible place to be and everything like this. Uh, well, you'll excuse uh, some of us husbands or men looking at that longingly. Say, I wish we had somebody to push the buck to, you know, to get off my back and take it up with so-and-so. But actually we do, and it's related to God. And when somebody is pressuring us to make a decision, uh, to do something that we know we don't want to do or we know is wrong, we can just stop and say, listen, you have to take that up with God. And so you talk to him about it. And then if he talks to me as a result of your conversation, then we got a different story. But don't be coming and bothering me all the time about it. And so... He, he takes and, and he heads into this battle. Ahab ends up dead uh, as a result of the battle. And um, 
Jehoshaphat escapes by the skin of his teeth. Translation, by the grace of God. (laughs) He should have been killed in the battle. And so we pick it up now in chapter 19. And then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, he returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. You ever had one of those? Man, I almost died out there. Thank you, Lord. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, one of the prophets of the Lord, he went out to meet Jehoshaphat upon his return. And he said to King Jehoshaphat, should you, so you're talking to a king here, I mean, you, you, to be a prophet and to speak for the Lord, I mean, you took your life at risk, both then and today. So he spoke to the king and he said, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Speaking of Ahab and Jezebel and Israel. And he said, therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. There's a a judgment upon you, probably talking about an invasion that was going to occur, as we'll read uh, in the next chapter. And uh, so uh, he God takes and not God's not going to take any chances that Jehoshaphat figured this out himself, that, all right, I made a big mistake here. It was really dumb to align myself with the wicked and with those who hate God. So God sends a prophet and makes it just black and white clear to him. This is what you've done. But God was gracious toward him because though he had uh, this particular weakness in his life, He was generally a very good king. And so the Lord said, nevertheless, good things are found in you and that you have removed the wooden images from the land, the idolatry, and you have prepared your heart to seek God. In other words, God recognized Jehoshaphat was a true, genuine lover of uh, of the Lord. And the Lord appreciated that. And so Jehoshaphat, in response to uh, this uh, word from the Lord, Uh, He dwelt at Jerusalem and he sent out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim and he brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. And so he realized he made a mistake there and he responds to God's rebuke by, number one, accepting the rebuke. Uh, Some people, when they're rebuked by God, they they bristle and they'll fight, fight him on that. Other kings did that to their own hurt. But he was humble enough. You're right. That's what I did. And so what he did with God's rebuke is he gave himself to kind of buckling down and being an even greater influence for righteousness in the position that God had called him to. And that's a good thing to do in our lives when God rebukes us or we make a mistake. That's not a time to quit. Um, and, and never try to do anything for God again. But it makes us realize, boy, Lord, I've got weaknesses in my life and, and I've got frailties in my life that are a danger to your purposes for my life. And so I want to align my life even more with the word of God than I ever have before. And that's the way that he responded to that. And so he again sent people out into the land that was over his oversight and uh, encourage the people to uh, uh, grow deeper in their relationship with the Lord. And then he sent judges out in the land throughout all of the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, as he sends them out now, he said, Take heed to what you were doing, for you do not judge for man, but for God. You are representing God in your judgments. And the judges of of the children of Israel, they would make their judgments based upon the word of God. And so people were expecting to hear God's standard 
and, and God's decision related to the cases that they brought before the judges. And so he reminds them that you're not just representing yourself and this is a, a civil service job that you have. This is something that's very significant and that you're representing the Lord before the people. He said, take heed to what you're doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. And now, there, now therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor partiality, nor the taking of bribes. And so give them clear instruction from the word of God as you judge the cases. And what these judges would go to these major cities and people would come and say, all right, this is the situation, the problem I'm having with my neighbor or I'm having with this merchant or this situation. Bring it. What does the word of God say needs to be done here? And then and then that would be. The, the justice that would be meted out. And he wouldn't just make it as a suggestion. This would be what the judges would decree. And so the, uh, there was, they were not to be bribed. They were not to have partiality. They were to represent the Lord. And more, moreover, in Jerusalem, for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and the priests, uh, the Levites and priests, uh, and some of the chief fathers of Israel when they returned to Jerusalem. And he commanded them, saying, Lest you shall act in the fear of the Lord faithfully and with a loyal heart. And so here are the cases where these judges went out into the smaller cities. They were fortified cities, so significant cities. But let's say they got a case that came before them and they said, Uh-oh, don't, I don't know how the word of God applies to this. And so what they would do is they'd run it up to the Supreme Court, equivalent of that in this. And so they'd say, you need to go to Jerusalem and talk to the higher court or higher judges to deal with that particular case. And so here is what Jehoshaphat is uh, is establishing here. And he said, whatever case comes to you from your brethren who dwell in their cities, whether of bloodshed uh, or offenses against law or commandment, against statutes or ordinances, you shall warn them lest they trespass against the Lord and wrath come upon you and your brethren. Do this and you will not be guilty. And take notice. Here's a warning that he gives for judges. Uh, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of the Lord. In other words, this was the guy that was over all. Um, everything that had to do with uh, religious issues within the, the land having to do with the word of God. And uh, Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, he is going to be over all of the king's matters, civil matters. And also the Levites will be officials before you. And then his exhortation, behave courageously and the Lord will be with the good. And so righteous judges were established in the land. And the position of a judge, uh, a, a judge in any society is a very significant position. Um, and it is a position that is intended to hold the fabric of society together. And so these judges were to have two characteristics supremely. They were to judge according to the word of God. And number two, they were to judge in the fear of God. And so they needed to have a fear of God, a desire to please God that was greater than a fear of man, a desire to please man or a love of self, 
a desire to make judgments in the hopes that everyone will consider me, uh, you know, will, will, uh, I'll be popular as a result. And so those were to be the, the characteristics that they have. And he tells them that they need to behave courageously and that the Lord will be with the good, and that is with, with the good judge, judges. He will bless the decrees that they give. The further away that a nation moves from God's standard of right and wrong in his word, uh, that is a nation that is introducing um, uh, essentially uh, anarchy into its society. And it can only do that for so long. There's consequences to sin as far far reaching. And the judges were to be kind of a defense against that kind of thing. And the warning here was that uh, that if the judges would be faithful to the word of God and judge righteously, then they would be an influence for the health of society. But again, the more and more and what our judges face today is that more and more the laws that they're being asked to enforce do not represent God's standards. But even within that, uh, more and more you find judges who are using a position of a judge uh, as a position for political activism. Uh, It's not a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of uh, advancing agendas, that kind of thing. And so if you get too much of that going on, then pretty soon you're, you're introducing uh, this uh, seeds for the destruction of the society is, is being uh, set in. And so the judges in any kind of society, they are a defense against anarchy within, within the society. And so this is why he calls on them to behave courageously. And so today the judges, you, you take a judge who even takes the laws of the land, not even the laws of God's word, and make stands based upon our law, that judge, whether it's a man or a woman, uh, had better be very, very brave in, in taking that position because there'll be all kinds of, uh, you know, political firestorm over positions that they can take. And so this position of the judge was a, a, a very, very uh, important in halting the advance of ungodliness within a society. And if they failed to do their job, then ungodliness would then begin to move at a great speed throughout, uh, throughout the society. And it happened after this that the people of Moab and the people of Ammon and others will, will discover that these others are the Edomites a little bit later in the chapter. Uh, and others with them, besides the Ammonites, they came up to battle against Jehoshaphat. So everything's going good, and then here comes this invasion. And then some came, and they told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in uh, Hazaron Tamar, which is in En Gedi. Now, En Gedi isn't that far from the city of Jerusalem. And so basically the news is coming and we're being invaded by three nations 
And wow, they're really close to the capital. They've made some, you know, uh, significant kind of uh, uh, inroads into the country. And so Jehoshaphat, his immediate reaction was that he feared. He was afraid. Isn't it nice to know that other people fear too? <laughs> you know, we get bad news. What? We're being invaded by what? Or what? You know, whatever we get in the mail or something. And so his immediate reaction was fear. But then his second reaction is the best way to combat fear. He set himself to seek the Lord. And so he says, all right, I've got to get the mind of the Lord related to all of this. And so he is going to head into prayer. Prayer is the greatest uh, uh, thing to come against fear with. Because nothing anybody else can say to me is going to alleviate my fear. Because they're just a finite person, just like I'm a finite person. And their wisdom is really no better than anybody else's wisdom. And so we need to hear, Lord, how do you see this? What's really going on? And then even more importantly, what do you want me to do here? And those are things that God reveals to us through prayer. So the importance of uh, prayer. I mean, you, you, people can, I mean, you can sit here and say, oh, come on. I mean, is this like, is this like Bible 101? Yeah, that's my problem. But anyway, we can sit here tonight. And you can be sitting here tonight, and, and if you're like me, you can miss the obvious. You can miss the forest for the tree. And, and, and you can be sitting here absolutely dominated by fear and not even realize, I need to respond to that in prayer. And so the scripture reminds us of this. And so he set himself to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And so Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. So uh, Joseph says, I don't want to just pray alone related to this. I want, you know, a, agreement in prayer. And so they all came together to ask the Lord uh, for help from the Lord. And from all of the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And so there in the area of the temple. And then here is his prayer. He said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? And so he stops here and he begins to pray and uh, speak of the greatness of the God that he is praying to. Now, God didn't need that reminder that he was as great and, and as powerful as Jehoshaphat was saying. He didn't say, boy, I, li I like it when Jehoshaphat prays that my self-esteem just absolutely skyrockets. <laughs> Jehoshaphat prays it, not because God has a need to hear it, because we have a need to say it. We're in that kind of a place to stop and to have some sanctified boasting in our God, I'm afraid we've been invaded by three nations. They're going to destroy men, women and children. And so who is it that I'm praying to now? And, and what is and to stop and remind myself of how great he is and how much greater he is than the situation that I'm facing. So difficulty always has to be measured by the ability of the agent that's doing the work. And because God is all-powerful, there's nothing that's too difficult for him. He knows that. I forget that. 
So I need to be reminded of the greatness of the God that I'm going to bring my needs to. Jesus knew it all about us. The disciples came to him and he said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray like John the Baptist has taught his disciples? And Jesus said, well, pray after this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven, (laughs) hallowed be thy name. And you don't just race through that. Whatever the problem is that we're facing, I am about to talk to my Father who is in heaven. And all of a sudden, in just a sentence, I begin to regain perspective related to the hugeness of the thing that I'm facing. As big as that is, that is a tiny thing in comparison to my God. And so he begins in this place. Reminding himself of how great and how big his God is. I like that about Jesus when he taught us to pray. You know, sometimes something comes in and it's really big and we want to get right to uh, give us this day our daily bread. You know, we want to get right to the physical need deal. And, uh, but it will only be confident that God will do that as we remember who it is that we are praying to and then spend a little time just worshiping and praising him for who he is. So he reminds himself in prayer of how great and big this God is that he was praying to. And he said, are you not our God? who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever. And and so he reminds himself of in prayer. It's to the Lord, but there's a self-reminder in it. He reminds himself of the long history of God's faithfulness in their life as a nation. And all of us have walked with the Lord for any length of time. We face something. You know, I hate the fact that God has done so many great things in my life, and then the next big problem comes up, and so often I react to it like it's the first problem I've ever seen in the 30 years I've walked with the Lord. But sometimes it's like that. And so you just stop and you step back and you say, Lord, I think we've been here before. (laughs) I think I have a long track record of your faithfulness in my life. And I want to think about that a little bit as I bring this need to you. What he has been in our lives, he will always be in our lives. Here's something you never hear God say. Oops. He just doesn't do it. He never makes a mistake. He's not going to drop us now. He's not going to become something different on us now. He's always going to be faithful to us. And then he said, and they dwell in it speaking of the land, and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Now, here's what he's talking about there. You remember when they dedicated the temple, Solomon dedicated the temple and he made the prayer and the request of God. God, if we ever have a drought, if we ever have disease or pestilence, if we're ever defeated by our enemies, if we ever have any kind of a problem and we come to this place, the temple, and we pray to you in repentance, will you hear our prayer and answer that prayer? And God said that he would do that. So basically... What Jehoshaphat is doing here is he is claiming 
a promise of God that God had made to them, uh, to the children of Israel. It is so important to claim a promise of God that relates to the situation that we're in. Now, you have in some kind of extreme uh, parts of uh, Pentecostalism today. I'm certainly not condemning all Pentecostalism. But you have this kind of name it and claim it, where sometimes verses that don't promise anything at all, like what they're claiming, are claimed. And then God doesn't come through because that's not what he promised. But they're trying to corner God sometimes with his promises. And then they end up disappointed and it's a big mess. So sometimes we can back away from claiming the promises of God. When we find ourselves in this kind of a trial or lesser trials... One of the most beautiful things to see in a Christian's life is where they find a promise from God's word related to this situation. And they say to God, God, I am claiming this promise of yours concerning your people in this kind of situation. And I honor you in claiming that promise. And in claiming this promise, I am declaring that your word spoken here will have the final say in this situation. And so the importance of claiming something from God's word related to to the need that we have. It's a beautiful thing to see somebody who's facing some gigantic thing. It can be a divorce, it can be a problem with a child, it can be whatever it might be. And you talk to them and you and they speak to you and they say, God's word has said in the book of Philippians or in Ephesians or in the book of the of Romans has said this to his people related to this situation. And I am claiming that promise for this situation It's fabulous. And God not only allows that, but he wants us to do that. And that's exactly what Jehoshaphat uh, does here. And then he explains the situation uh, to God again, not that God. Uh, needs to be informed. Uh, sometimes you can be in a situation where somebody's praying and they feel that they need to inform God of the entire situation. And uh, sometimes it can be a little tedious listening to a 35-minute informing of a situation that God is fully aware of. But sometimes as I'm in that kind of a place, and I'm prone to the same thing myself, but sometimes I'll listen and be in agreement with prayer, realizing that this person has a need to say all of this to God. So Jehoshaphat has a need to explain to God what it is that is, is going on here. And so prayer does something inside of us as well as we're talking to God. It's communication. So he's explaining this to God again for his own benefit. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, which are the Edomites, whom you would not let Israel invade when you brought them out of the land of Israel. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. The interesting thing about these three nations is when the children of Israel were led out of Egypt by God, they were attacked by these people and and God refused to let them destroy these people. And so now after we've been good to them in, in not destroying them, this is what we get in return. And so uh, you wouldn't let Israel invade when they when they came out of the land of Israel, but they 
they turned from them and did not destroy them. And here we are. Uh, uh, they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, speaking of the land of Israel, which you have given us to inherit it. Now, verse 11 will solve a lot of problems over in the Middle East. If everyone will just agree on it. Land of Israel belongs to God. The little plot my house is on in Modesto, California, that belongs to God. The whole world belongs to God. We're all renting. We're all tenants. So because the whole world, he created the whole world belongs to him. He can give any part of it that he wants to to anyone. And he has, in his wisdom and purposes, given the land of Israel to the children of Israel. It was his to give to them, and he gave it to them. And nobody can really squawk about uh, any, any of that. And so here we have the same kind of s- scenario that we have today, and that is uh, a group of people uh, trying to destroy uh, the nation of Israel or uh, destroy the children of, of Israel. And so y- you've given us the land as your possession. Here we are. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? Now, remember the promise to Abraham, I will bless those who bless thee. I will curse those who curse thee. And so uh, Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir are up against, they're on the curse side of that cursing. And God knows how to bless and he knows how to judge. And uh, he knows how to do it today, related to the children of Israel as well. And you can send them billions and billions of dollars in foreign aid uh, while they're plotting the destruction of Israel, and you're just throwing your money away. And you're on the wrong side of God's plan for human history. He said, for we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what you will do. We have no idea how you're going to deliver us, but our eyes are upon you. So here is the gaze of faith. Lord, we put our trust in you and in you alone. Now, one of the things that I love about uh, verse 12 here is Jehoshaphat makes this statement publicly. It's so refreshing to hear in a leader. I don't have the foggiest idea what's going to happen here. But my eyes are on the Lord and we're going to trust in him and we're going to see what it is that he does. So just this honesty, he's not pretending, he's not trying to double talk in this political speech that's so prevalent today, say a bunch of words that don't say anything. He's just a man who is called by God to be a king, and he represents the fact that, Lord, if it was left up to me as a king and my wisdom and my everything, we'd be in trouble. But it isn't left up to me. It's about you and our eyes are upon you. And so that what that does here is he is giving the Lord the before the eyes of the people, whatever God does, he's going to get all the glory for it. And so he publicly makes this statement and, and then gives God plenty of room to work because God will then receive the glory among his people. And now all Judah and their children, their little ones, their wives and their children stood before the Lord. And so this great assembly included men, women, children, everyone. And then the spirit of the Lord came upon uh, uh, Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of uh, Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mathaniah, 
a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So he's just sitting there. He's just in the audience. He's just there praying and the fast and the whole deal. He's listening to the prayer of Jehoshaphat as king. And, and he's in relationship with God and all. And all of a sudden, as he's sitting in this crowd, we don't know how many, tens of thousands of people, the Lord chooses him to speak through to the crowd, to the king and to uh, the crowd. And here you have one of the most beautiful examples of a prophecy, of a word of wisdom, and a word of knowledge in all of the Bible, where God now speaks through this man to the king and to the nation about what they should do in the situation that they're in. It's kind of funny, you know, it's exci- you put yourself in his place. I'm not going to try and say his name again, much less his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather and his great-great-grandfather. But imagine as he is sitting there, if you've ever been in an afterglow or something like that, or you're just going along in life and God prompts you to speak something to somebody. And and so here you are in the afterglow and God chooses and says, this is what I want you to speak forth. I mean, it's quite a feeling to have that. Okay, I'm supposed to speak for God here. Here he is in this environment. He's all alone. Only he and God know that this is going on between him and them. And then now he's going to interrupt the silence following the prayer and he's going to make this declaration for God. I'm sure God gave him a gift of faith in addition to the word of wisdom and word of prophecy so he would know, yes, this is from the Lord and I'm going to say it. But it is a beautiful Beautiful illustration of several of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so he said, listen, all of you, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed. All right. Give me one reason because of uh, because of the greatness of the multitude. Give me one reason for the battle is not yours, but God's. And tomorrow, go down against them. Don't wait for them to come to you. You go down against them, and they will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you'll find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. And you will not need to fight in this battle. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And so the Lord speaks to him and says, I'm going to destroy this invading army, and I'm not even going to use you to do it. I want you to go to this place. I want you to come face to face with them, not to engage them in battle, but to watch the great thing that I'm going to do in delivering you. I want you to have good seats for this. So imagine, I mean, you know when you're in the middle of a great trial and a a fear-provoking trial in our lives, and then you get the instruction of the Lord on what to do in that situation, and then the reminder that the Lord is with 
you. And so what this uh, meant to them, and we see the response for how much they appreciated this uh, revelation from the Lord, this word from the Lord. And Jehoshaphat, he bowed down his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. This was the response that they had to the, the voice of God in answer to prayer. And so they began to worship the Lord, all of them. And then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. We have the mind of the Lord and God's promise says that we're not going to be destroyed, all of our husbands and all of our wives and all of our children, but that he's going to deliver us. I bet that was a fabulous worship uh, uh, you know, service uh, to experience. And so they rose early in the morning. This is early in the morning faith. When you got a promise like that from God, you don't wake up at 10 in the morning, even if you're a musician. So they rose up very early in the morning. They went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and he said to the people, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise uh, and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And so he, he says, we're going to go out, we're going to meet this army in battle, and we're going to go out praising uh, the Lord. And now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. And here's how the defeat occurred. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, the Edomites, and they then proceeded to utterly kill and destroy them. So this confederation, uh, they, they didn't really care for one another. They just hated the Jews more. Uh, nothing new under the sun. But before they could do that, they then, in their historical animosity toward one another, Ammon and Moab began to fight against the Edomites, utterly destroyed them. And when they'd made an end of the inhabitants of, Se of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. They started to fight uh, each other. And so when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude and uh, there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped an utter destruction of the armies. You didn't have to chase them down or anything like that. They had completely killed one another to the last man. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves more than that they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. You got the whole nation of Israel going out, gathering the spoil from the, the dead bodies of these three armies. Gives you an idea of how great that invading force was. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah. 
For there they bless the Lord, and therefore the name of that place is called the Valley of Barakah until this day. And then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. And so they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets, singing, praising the Lord to the house of the Lord. So here's an important part of prayer, too. Is that when God answers our prayers, it's important to do what they did, and that is say thank you. (laughs) It's an attractive. Thankfulness is a very attractive trait in a human being, and it's attractive to God as well, because he takes note of it and he records it here in the passage. Uh, We might remember in the Gospels where Jesus healed the ten lepers. They called out for healing, and Jesus said, go to the priests and And uh, they turned toward Jerusalem to go show themselves to the priests. They were immediately cleansed of their leprosy. Only one of them, a Samaritan, a non-Jew, came back to give Jesus thanksgiving. And Jesus said, were there not ten that were healed? And only one comes back to give thanks to the Samaritan. And it tells us that Jesus, he loves to bless and he loves to cleanse and he loves to heal, to bless our lives. But he does notice uh, whether thanksgiving is returned to him. And I, I, I have to tell you, uh, he blesses our lives so much in so many different ways. We tend to think as Americans, we always think like dollars and cents. He blesses um, uh, some of us with sanity, uh, peace, you know, a lot of different things. He, he blesses us in, in a lot of different ways. And I don't even pretend to notice. Ten percent of his blessings in my life on a daily basis. But what we do notice, it's good to give him thanks for that, which is what they did here. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet for his God gave him rest all around. And so this victory was so obviously from the Lord. Everybody said, all right, hands off. We uh, we don't want to take on their God. And and uh, this was one of the net results uh, of the victory. And so Jehoshaphat was king as kind of a summary now of his reign. He was king over Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. So uh, he went to be with the Lord at, and, uh, at, at 60 years of age. His mother's name was uh, Azubah, the daughter of Shilhai. And he walked in the ways of his father Asa and did not turn. His father Asa was a good king, did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. For as yet the people had not directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. So here's this great king Jehoshaphat, very godly influence in the southern kingdom of Judah. But he could only influence the nation so much. A nation will become uh, whatever is the, the moral equivalent of its citizens. A government can or a leader can on the short term elevate morality within a nation. But if the people as a whole are resistant to that morality or that righteousness, then uh, it's a battle that's, uh, that will ultimately then pull back in, in the wrong, uh, wrong direction. And so here is Jehoshaphat. He continually endeavored 
to remove the idolatry, the high places, all these kind of things. But as fast as he could do it, the people would rebuild those things. And so this was the battle that he was uh, up against. And, and so he uh, tried to fight it as, as well as he could. But the, the mind of the people, they did not share Jehoshaphat's love for the Lord in general. And so it wasn't his fault that this was the way that it was, but the people. So, I mean, surely, I think for us as Christians, we look at the country that we live in, the United States of America, and we see the moral decay that's going on. We see the trend, strong trends in the wrong direction. And uh, they, they, they will never be able to pass enough laws uh, to turn this thing around. What will be required will be a revival, but the transformation of a neighborhood or of a community or of a nation occurs when the people that make up that nation or that neighborhood or that community, uh, the moral base of those people, uh, they come together and say, we're not going to accept this other thing. We're, this is what we want our community to be. And, of course, the politicians or the leaders, they need that kind of a support from the, the, the population to be, then be able to take the steps that sometimes they're wanting to take if they don't have any kind of political will. But that's what needs to happen. Our nation is where it is today because this is what an increasing number of its people are like. And that has to change for a nation to turn around uh, morally. Our place in it is Christians. We can't change that. But what we can do is live the life that God has called us to live in the environments that he's called us to live it in so that people can see that there is a different kind of life that can be lived. And, and this is the quality of life that God's, God produces within a person. And then it's up to him to use that then to impact uh, other people's lives. And so the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, first and last, indeed, they are, uh, are written in the book of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which is mentioned in the book of the kings of Israel. And after this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, he uh, allied uh, himself with uh, Ahaziah, the king of Israel, who acted very, very wickedly. And he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships in Ezion Geber. So here is Jehoshaphat. I mean, it's the same weakness in his life. He gets pulled into the northern the king. Uh, the uh, king of the northern kingdom of Israel, a very wicked man, uh, Jehoshaphat had, had gone into battle uh, uh, in alliance with Ahab. And now uh, here is one of Ahab's descendants here, Ahaziah. And, and Ahaziah comes to Jehoshaphat and says, essentially, hey, why don't we become trading partners and uh, why don't we build a navy? People are making a lot of money with with uh, trade on, on the seas. Why don't we build up a. Uh, a, a navy and, and ships that can uh, uh, produce trade in Arabia and out on the Mediterranean Sea and these kind of places. We're missing out on this great kind of economic money-making opportunity. And Jehoshaphat looks at it and says, boy, that sounds like, like a good idea. And so uh, he says, well, count me in on it. And so they begin to build this uh, navy. And, and he is aligning himself again with evil people. 
He's aligning himself with people that God has said, I must judge and I will judge. And when I judge them, you don't want to be found in relationship uh, with them. And so he makes does the same thing over again here. And uh, Eliezer, the son of Dadava, uh, he prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, because you have uh, allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. And then the ships were wrecked so that they were not able to go to Tarshish. And so God just brought in a storm or whatever he did, and he simply destroyed the entire fleet before it could ever uh, uh, sail and try and make money. What did Jehoshaphat need with more money? I mean, he had power. He had God's favor on his life. He had the peace of being right with God. He had enough money to make sure he got three meals a day and his family did. And more than that. You know, why is God's people is this temptation to think, okay, I'm missing out on some big money-making operation and I'm going to align myself with wicked people or ungodly people in order to get more. And then to put everything at risk as a result of it. He was so blessed. There was no need to do this. And so God just destroys the entire venture. So again, there may be one or two of us, or how many of us here tonight, young or old, it doesn't matter. Here you are, God's favor is on your life. And because God's favor is on your life, you got $50 in a cookie jar on the kitchen counter. And somebody knows that you've got that and they want to build some ships, or they want to do this or want to do that. Somebody wicked sees that you have resources, that they need to do their thing, and they want to pull you in on this business deal. And your life is so peaceful, it's so blessed by God, you have everything that you need from God. And it's so easy then to begin to give the consideration to something like that and then align ourselves with it. And Jehoshaphat teaches us that we need to say no to those kind of things. We never have to align with evil or evil people to have our needs supplied. God knows how to supply our needs, and he doesn't use those kinds of people to do that. And so you may be in that kind of a place today. You're about to sign that contract, and you know you are, you are uniting your life, your reputation, your fortune, however large or small it is, with a wicked human being. And God will think nothing of having you lose all of it, dashing all of the ships and destroying them before this thing can even get off the ground. In order to make the point, he's your provision in your life. And it honors him to look to him that way and not to be looking to these other ways to, to make a little bit more of money. And so the ships were destroyed, so they were not able to go to Tarshish. And Jehoshaphat, he rested with his fathers, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. And he had brothers, uh, the sons of Jehoshaphat, uh, Azariah, Jehiel, uh, Zechariah, uh, Azariah, Wahoo, or <laughs> Wahoo, Yahoo, Michael, and uh, Sephatiah. 
So that was a mouthful. So he's got he's the oldest of seven sons. Imagine calling them in for dinner. And these were all of the sons of Jehoshaphat, uh, the king of Israel. And so their father then gave to each of the six younger sons great gifts of silver and gold and precious things. And with fortified cities in Judah, he made them rulers over these significant cities. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. He was the oldest. And so it's interesting what Jehoshaphat was doing here before he died. He's got seven sons. Only one of them can be king. And uh, and so he's going to make the oldest one king. But when he dies, he doesn't want there to be like a fight over who's going to be king. So what he does is he gives each of the sons uh, tremendous resources and tremendous authority and power and everything that you would need to really live a good, influential, significant life for the Lord. So he gives them that so there wouldn't be after his death a fight for the crown. And, And the reason that that's important to understand is Jehoshaphat already took care of the problem in a righteous way that Jehoram is going to take take care of in a very, very uh, murderous way. So this is great wisdom on Jehoshaphat's side, and and he's wanting to make sure things are peaceful after he dies. Now, when Jehoram was established as the king uh, of over the kingdom of his father, over Judah, he then strengthened himself once he'd secure all of the power and he proceeded to kill all of his brothers, all six of his brothers with the sword, ordered them to be killed, and also uh, others of the princes of Israel. He kills every potential claimant to the crown. And so so that he alone can be the king. No, I mean, he just he knows already he's a wicked, wicked man. And he knows if the people perhaps he thinks to himself, if the people have another option besides me, they will opt for that option. So I'm going to remove all those options in terms of a king of the lineage of David. So he's just a wicked, terrible person who would murder all of his brothers to uh, maintain power and then all of the nephews and, and everyone else within the bloodline. And he was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for he had the daughter of Ahab as a, a wife, uh, Athaliah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, this was another mistake that Jehoshaphat made, because back in uh, uh, chapter 18, we see we we read where Jehoshaphat um, aligned his family with the family of Ahab by allowing his son here, uh, uh, Jehoram, uh, Jehoram, uh, to marry a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And so that's what he did. That's the wife that he has. And Jehoshaphat should have never, ever done that. Should have never introduced the bloodline of Ahab and that wickedness into not only his own family, but into having the place of being a queen over the southern kingdom of Judah after what Ahab had done in terms of wickedness in the northern kingdom of Israel. But he did it. I don't know what he was thinking. But maybe he was thinking... Well, my son Jehoram is the son of Jehoshaphat, who is the son of Asa, two of the greatest kings in the history of Judah. 
This woman, she comes from a wicked family. She's a worshiper of Baal. She has no concern for the God of the Bible. And yet, surely, if we bring her into this godly lineage, generations of people in this family have loved God, we'll bring her into our family and we will convert her to righteousness rather than her converting us to wickedness. And it didn't happen. The exact opposite occurred. That's why the Bible says that we are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Someone that doesn't know and worship the Lord. If I am in, in a if I am in your house and and uh, or let's just let's let's remove your house from the scenario. If I take and I put a, a stool or a chair out here in the middle of of the room here and I stand up on that chair and I try to pull you up on that chair and you try to pull me down, which is the easier thing to do. Always easier to pull someone down. Always easier. The only way I can pull you up onto that chair is if you want to be pulled up on that chair. Then we can have success there. But not when you have righteousness and wickedness in kind of an equal determination. Far easier to pull down. And that's why God says we are to be careful about who we make our influencers in life, who we put around us, this kind of thing. And so she was able to pull them down. They were never able to pull her uh, up. And so the Lord, though, he would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. And there would be good kings that would follow this despicable king. And in his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and they made a king over themselves. And so when Jehoram became king, they recognized a weakness in him because of his wickedness. The Edomites had been um, had paid tribute. They were in subordination to Judah from the time of David and Solomon for about a 100 years. And here they recognized we see weakness now in the kingdom because of the wickedness of this man. Let's revolt against uh, their rule. And so Jehoram, he responded to this with his officers. All of his chariots went with him. They went out to fight the Edomites. And he rose by night and attacked the Edomites, who during the night, we know from Second Kings, had surrounded him and the captains of his chariots, and they realized were surrounded, were defeated. They were barely able to break an opening in the surrounding forces to escape with their lives. Again, he did escape by the skin of his teeth, and thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. And then at that time, Libna, which was a city, uh, not too far away from uh, Jerusalem, uh, taking, uh, seeing the weakness here and, and the success of Edom in that revolt. They revolted against his rule because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. And so all of this is a judgment against him because of his wickedness. And moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah, and he caused the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem to commit harlotry, and he led Judah astray. So he's basically undoing all of the good that his father and his grandfather had done uh, in the nation by reintroducing all of this idolatry and sin and sexual immorality that was involved with all of it back into the land. And then a letter came to him 
from Elijah the prophet. Excuse me? Number one, Elijah's ministry is interesting in two points. Elijah's ministry was supremely to the northern kingdom of Israel. Here we see him getting involved in the southern kingdom of Judah. The second thing is, this is the only record of something that was written by the prophet Elijah that is in existence. And and the only thing that's existent in the Bible. So he writes this letter to this king in order to, to turn him from his sin. And he said, thus says the Lord God of your father, David, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah. In other words, you have thrown away your godly heritage, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahab and also have killed your brothers, those of your father's household who were better than yourself. Behold, the Lord will strike you, will strike your people with a serious affliction. He's going to bring judgment upon the people, your children, your wives, all of your possessions. And in addition to that, you will become very sick with the disease of your intestines, your bowels, until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day. I don't know what that is, but I don't want it. So God warns him here. Related to this. And moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram. And again, the idea is for him to come to repentance. Here is the warning. God sees there were a lot of other kings that repented of their sin and God showed grace to them. And so here is God pulling out like prophet number one. And God is speaking through that prophet. And surely Jehoram had heard of the prophet Elijah and of, you know, the accuracy with which he spoke for God, that he was really a mouthpiece for God. It was God just getting on a megaphone to this guy. And uh, and yet he's not going to listen uh, to him. And moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. And uh, so this is God's judgment that is occurring here. And they came up into Judah. They invaded it and they carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house. Also, uh, his sons and his wives. He loses all of that so that there was not a son left to him except Jehoiahaz, the youngest of his sons. And Jehoiahaz was also named uh, known as Ahaziah who we will uh, look into next week, Lord willing, in chapter 22. And after this, the loss of everything, the Lord struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. uh, And then it happened in the course of time, uh, after the end of two years, that his intestines came out uh, because of his sickness, and he died in severe pain. So here is a man with tremendous power, Uh, No one has the authority or the ability to bring judgment upon him, to bring an end to the wickedness of his reign. And so 
uh, because of the power that he has. But God has resources uh, and options that the average human being does not have to reach beyond all of the protection of, of power and, and all of those kind of things and to reach right into this man's body and then bring an end to his life in this kind of way. Sometimes people say, well, what a terrible thing to do. You know, just to that kind of person, I would say, would just move to some country in this world that is ruled by an ungodly dictator and then watch what that dictator turns that nation and people into. Watch the casualties that they make of people and, and then uh, maybe be able to figure out that if God were to step in in judgment in removing that, that person, that that might be a cause for rejoicing in the world and not for feeling sorry uh, for a wicked person. So God can do what he wants, how he wants to do it. And he removed this wicked man in this way. And the, his people made no burning for him like the burning of his fathers. When you would, uh, this burning was apparently to show honor to the king after he had died. They said, forget that. We're not going to do it for him. There was absolutely no respect for him. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for eight years uh, and to no one's sorrow departed. Now there's a tombstone for you, isn't it? Go through the cemetery. To no one's sorrow, he departed. I'd, get, I'd hunch down and get a picture right there of that. That's a, but that's, that's, that's the legacy he left, and a lot of people do that, but we're not always so honest at our memorial services um, that they were related to him. However, they buried him in the city of David. They did bury him in Jerusalem, but they didn't bury him in the tombs of the kings uh, where the godly kings were buried because he didn't live a godly life. He didn't want being buried uh, where they were buried. And so they didn't do it. And so we'll stop there this evening and pick it up in chapter 22 um, next week. Let's stand together. If the worship team come forward. That'd be great. So it's the same old world we it's the same old world we live in and it's the same old lessons and God repeats them over and over and over again because at least I do and I know you do we need to hear them over and over and over again and so the uh, the, the the realm of the wicked that's all around us that we operate in the importance of staying separated from it the importance of not aligning ourselves uh, with with that wickedness God does not uh, need the help. And so the importance of that and who we're looking to marry here is a king. I mean, he's he married an absolutely terrible, terrible woman. You know, if, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But these things, these important lessons in life to move away from evil, move toward God and give God the opportunity to bless our lives the way that he wants to. God is just looking for half a chance to bless our lives. He knows we need him. We, he knows we need his blessings. And just our simple obedience to him allows him to do that in the way that, that he desires to. Let's pray right now. Lord, we thank you so much for the lessons of Jehoshaphat's life and uh, Jehoram's life and certainly on the negative side of things. But we need to learn from that angle as well. And we just pray, Lord, not only concerning ourselves, but for one another in this room, 
if our decision making tonight in terms of relationships or business or anything in our life is going in a wrong direction as illuminated by your word, we pray, Lord, that you would rescue us tonight and that we would just choose righteousness, the peacefulness of that life, the blessing of that life, Lord, the honor that that life brings to you this evening. And we thank you, Lord, for showing us the mistakes of others so that we can then avoid those mistakes. We pray, Lord, for this passage that we've looked at tonight, these three chapters, and we ask that if there is any ongoing work of your Holy Spirit that needs to occur in any of our lives tonight before we go to bed, that all of that would be accomplished that everything that this passage is intended to do in each of our lives this evening, that it would accomplish all of that. And we trust you and your Holy Spirit to cause that to happen this evening. Thank you for the nourishment of your word. Thank you for the cleansing of your word. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here tonight and you are not yet a Christian, there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. who so have a badge on uh, that says prayer so you can recognize them easily. They'd love to pray with you to begin a relationship with the God of this Bible this evening. And he would love to begin that relationship with you. Take advantage of the opportunity. If you need prayer for 